Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. I recently had a student ask me a pretty interesting question. He asked me, what do you do when you realize that even though you think you're writing all these different projects, you're really just writing the same script over and over again? And that question made me think about a couple of different questions facing writers as they move into the professional career. The first is just an artistic question. What do you do when you're following the same cycle again and again and again, when all your scripts seem to be converging around the same idea or the same themes? The second question is a question about branding. Is how do you brand yourself as a writer? How do you figure out what box to put yourself in? How do you figure out whether you should write a script that's very different from the one you've written before? or whether you should build a brand around scripts that are similar. So I want to talk about what happens when you realize you're ripping yourself off, that you're writing the same movie again and again and again. And there are a couple of possibilities as to why this happens, and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Sometimes there are themes that we just haven't finished dealing with, that we just have to get out of ourselves. And and those themes actually sometimes occupy just more than one screenplay's worth of our lives. All writing is really just looking inside and wrestling with the stuff that we have going on inside. And if we're doing it right, we're wrestling with the stuff we don't totally understand yet. Or we wouldn't need to wrestle with it in the first place. And sometimes when that same stuff comes up again and again and again, it's really just a sign that you haven't totally figured it out yet, that there's something still a little broken in there or a little confusing, just old stuff that you're still cycling through and still trying to figure out. And there are many, many, many examples of truly great writers who do this. Uh, And not just screenwriters. Haruki Murakami, the great novelist, has a ton of novels in which there's a well and a cat and the cat runs away and then his girlfriend disappears and then he ends up at the bottom of the well and this happens again and again and again and again and it's the same darn symbols in every novel. And as you're reading them, the truth of the matter is you don't care. Every time there's a cat, you know the cat is going to run away and his girlfriend's going to leave him. But the reason you don't care is because in each novel he finds a way to push a little deeper on those symbols each time. He's giving you the same symbols, he's wrestling with the same symbol. And there's obviously a time in his life where an animal left him and his girlfriend left him at the same time. And there's obviously something for him about Wells as a symbol of change and coming out as a different person than who you are when you went in. There. These are obviously things that mean something to Murakami. The moon means something to Murakami. And so sometimes there are just these phases that we go through as a writer. Another great example of this is Darren Aronofsky. Nearly every movie he's ever made, maybe with the exception of Noah, uh, which is questionable in a whole bunch of different categories, but nearly every movie that he's made has ended with a death or a suicide that's also a moment of salvation. Pie, The Fountain, The Wrestler, Black Swan, all of these great movies 
They all have the exact same ending. It's this suicide, this death, that's also a salvation. And that ending isn't new. In fact, that ending is stolen from a movie called Thelma and Louise. But there is this idea of death and transcendence at the same time that is profound to Aronofsky and that drives him through these movies. And yet, nobody would ever mistake the fountain for pie or pie for black swan. These are completely different movies. Darren Aronofsky made one of my favorite bad movies, a movie called The Fountain. And honestly, I have probably watched The Fountain more than any other film. And if there's ever a film that I wish I had a chance to rewrite, it's The Fountain. It's a beautiful premise, and it has one of the best trick endings of all time. And you're basically watching three different stories. And they are all stories about the search for the fountain of youth. In the past, you have a conquistador who's literally looking for the fountain of youth. In the present, you have a brain surgeon who is trying to find the cure for brain cancer before his wife dies. And in some nebulous time, you have a monk floating in space in a bubble trying to save the tree of life which is dying. So you have all these three beautiful stories that all come together at this incredibly moving surprise ending. And the movie, honestly, totally fails. And you can see why. Aronofsky shot for the moon. How do you tell the story of a monk floating in a bubble who has no one to interact with but a tree and make it work? Aronofsky also lost half his budget in the process of making the film, so a lot of the things that he wanted to do with this movie didn't happen. So you have this guy who for a period was one of the hottest up-and-coming directors in Hollywood whose quote suddenly falls to virtually nothing. He cannot get hired. And he ends up directing this movie called The Wrestler. And The Wrestler, compared to Aronofsky's other work, is an extraordinarily simple movie. It's the simplest movie he's ever done. There's no magic. There's no spiritual quality. There's no fragmentations of worlds. There's no crazy numerology. There's no multiple main characters. It's about an aging wrestler who wants to feel the way he used to feel when he was a superstar in the ring. And he gets an opportunity for a rematch with his old rival, the Sheik, only to have a heart attack that forces him to adapt to real life. And this movie is a total success. It revived Mickey Rourke's career. It put Darren Aronofsky back on the map as a director. But Aronofsky's not done with this theme. Because he hasn't done it yet in the Darren Aronofsky way. So he makes the same movie again. Only this time he calls it Black Swan. Aronofsky has spoken frankly that Black Swan is built on the bones of the wrestler. There was just something about that piece that wasn't done yet for him. And you can see what happened. He fell short on the fountain. He hadn't totally figured out how to tell that kind of story yet. On the wrestler, he went safe, and he did a better job on a simple character-driven movie than most people could ever do. But with Black Swan, it all came together. 
in his way. Because Aronofsky had directed the wrestler and understood those bones, he didn't have to figure out that structure again. He was able to go deeper, to riff on top of it, to subvert it, to undermine it, to wrestle with it, to do it in a way that only Darren Aronofsky could do it. This was a Darren Aronofsky movie, and the truth is, for all its success, in many ways, the wrestler was not. Sometimes when this stuff is coming up for you again and again, sometimes it's a good thing. The first movie I attempted to write, and attempted is generous, is a movie called The Tree of Life. And I'm not talking about the beautiful tree of life that you've seen by Terrence Malick. I'm talking about the one that never got made, based on a book called The Tree of Life by Hugh Nissenson. This book is basically an unadaptable novel. It's unadaptable because it's an epistolary and it's set, it's written as a man's journal. So many of the entries are something like, paid 30 cents for cheese. It's unadaptable because it's set in the 1812 war and it's so darn complicated. There are two communities. One is a Native American community and one is a white settlement. And they're living together in peace even as the 1812 war is heating up. And then this war starts between these two peoples who have been living in peace together. And this is all really interesting stuff, and I was so interested in this story, where you have two protagonists, and they're both good guys. And they're on opposite sides of the same war. And they're both just trying to find their guardian spirits, whatever that means, to do right by their people. And I was really excited about this. But it's an unadaptable novel because it's based on the philosophy of Emanuel Swedenborg. Uh, Swedenborg was actually very popular with the Native Americans of this time, and Johnny Appleseed was also a devotee of Swedenborg. And what Swedenborg believed in was that on this planet, we only see the effects of our actions. And that only after death do we get to see the causes. So the way the book is written, you don't see any of the causes of the events that happen. You only see the effects reported, and then you have to figure out what the hell happened that caused these events to occur. You have to piece it together, and in that way, in reading the novel, you become God. Now, this is an unbelievably complicated novel. This is a piece of literature, and it is not an easy adaptation, and I am a 20-year-old kid. I'm trying to figure out how to honor this attempt of the book to show the causes without showing the effects in my adaptation. I'm going to have two main characters on different sides of the same war that barely interact and yet change each other's lives, and they're both the good guy, and it's set in 1812 in Ohio. To say that I failed in this script does not even begin to explain what happened. And there are some really beautiful moments that I found, and... In many ways, this is my favorite script that I will never rewrite and that will never get made. But it has a very special place in my heart. Even though I know the actual execution of that piece is a failure. And it's a failure because I didn't know how to do that yet. It was just too darn hard. But I got obsessed with this idea of writing these movies that had two main characters on opposite sides of the same war. Two parallel storylines happening across space and time that spoke to each other in some way. 
So you can probably see why I like Darren Aronofsky. And I got obsessed with this. And how do I do it? How do I do it? I'm asking myself. It was the failure that made me want to do it. And I failed and I failed and I failed. And I wrote multiple movies trying to tell the same story of the two main characters. And I wanted it to feel like a musical composition, like a melody and a harmony. I wanted there to be a counterpoint between the two stories. I wanted it to be like a dance. I knew what I wanted it to be, but I didn't have the physical skill yet, the craft, the practice to actually do it. And what's interesting is I ended up getting hired on this movie called The Matthew Shepard Story. And The Matthew Shepard Story was the story of two main characters. One was Matthew's story, and the other story was the story of his parents, Judy and Dennis. And these two stories were actually happening separately from each other across time. But they came together at the end. Now, you don't have to build the Matthew Shepard story like that. But I was able to build on the bones of all those abandoned screenplays. I was able to build on all of those failures. And the truth is this kind of storytelling came together for me for the first time on Matthew Shepard. That was the first time I was able to make that structure work for myself. And the fact of the matter is I'm not done with that structure yet. There is still more for me to mine there. I still have an interest in what you can do with that structure, just like Darren Aronofsky had an interest in the wrestler structure. So sometimes finding that same pattern, sometimes finding yourself in the same structure or a similar structure isn't a bad thing. Sometimes it's simply a way of, of deepening where you're going. Eventually, I'll probably figure out what that broken thing in me is that needs to look at all these fragmented worlds. What is that thing that I'm trying to resolve in myself? And at some point, that probably will get resolved because writing is therapeutic. When you really do it for real, when you write this stuff honestly, you can't keep looking at this stuff and not eventually heal it. And so through the process of writing these things, we do heal those broken parts of ourselves. And then one day you wake up and you think, I have no interest in telling the story of two main characters on opposite sides of the same war. You lose interest because you've dealt with it. So it may be that we judge ourselves. Like, oh, we're ripping ourselves off. And what we really need to think is, you know what? I'm doing an Aronofsky. I'm doing a Kruger. I'm doing a insert your own name here. This is just where I am right now, and I'm not done with this theme, and I'm not done with this structure. All you really need to do is make sure that you're building on what came before, not just mimicking it. Actually get deeper, get below the surface. So that is the possibility, and oftentimes it's likely that that's exactly what's going on if you're getting that feeling of, oh my God, I've been here before. Oh my God, I'm writing the same script again and again. But there's also another side that's worth exploring, which is sometimes what's happening is you've just found a pattern that works and you're afraid to look at other possibilities. You can see this with actors sometimes. Look at Al Pacino early in his career. He gave some of the most complicated, nuanced, gorgeous performances. And then he learned that he could do this thing that people just freaking loved. They loved 
to hear Al Pacino yell. And it turned out that Al Pacino could yell better than pretty much anybody else in the world. The fact of the matter was, it didn't matter how many times he yelled, nobody ever got bored of Al Pacino yelling. But if you watch some of Pacino's later work, as opposed to his early works, he starts to become a caricature of himself. And you're sitting around waiting for Al Pacino to yell. Now, that is an artistic question. It's about who do you want to be as an artist? And there are writers who find a similar pattern. Blake Snyder, who wrote Save the Cat, figured out a formula for a script. Now, it doesn't work now, now that he's shared it with everybody and everybody's copying the formula, but back in the day when it was only Blake Snyder doing the Blake Snyder formula, it worked. Because producers weren't seeing it all the time. They were only seeing it from Blake Snyder. So sometimes what happens is you figure out a formula and the truth of the matter is if you keep that formula, it will serve your career, but it will not serve your art. And that I say that with no judgment. Danielle Steele has made more money on writing than most people in the universe. She has a formula. It's the same formula every time, but her fans never get tired of it. She's branded herself around that formula. And in fact, if she started to divert from that formula, she would actually lose fans. She'd actually make less money. Ken Follett had a formula. And then he did this book called Pillars of the Earth. And the truth is his fans loved it. But he was savaged by the critics. How dare this pulpy writer write this anachronistic historical epic? How dare this writer break the formula? So when we create a formula, what ends up happening is we end up creating a brand. What our audiences expect when they hear about our writing. And when I say audience, I mean not just the people who go to see your movie, but also your agent, your producer, your manager. Once they see that brand, what they want is exactly the same experience next time, but different. Now you ignore that desire at your peril but you also follow it at your peril. And these become the difficult decisions we have to make as writers. But when you have an audience that's demanding a certain kind of script from you, this is called a high class problem. So let me give you some examples. Charlie Kaufman, he didn't create a formula, but he created a style for himself. And more importantly, he created a tonality that we expect. When you go to see a Charlie Kaufman movie, you expect it to be really weird. You expect to laugh, and at the end of the day, you expect some kind of romantic comedy feeling. And maybe you cry a little bit, but at the end, you're going to feel like love is possible. What Charlie Kaufman is actually doing, for the most part, is just his own twist on the romantic comedy. He built his whole career doing his own twist on the romantic comedy. And the truth is, most of what he's written is weird, but is some form of a romantic comedy. And then he goes and does a movie called Synecdoche, New York. And this one he does without his director, Spike Jones. He directs it himself. And it's really the only movie Charlie Coffin's made that was a total failure at the box office. I don't think it was a failure creatively, but it was a failure financially. 
And the reason it was a failure at the box office was because the box office was because he didn't deliver what the audience wanted. You went to see that movie and you didn't laugh. It was weird, but mostly what you experienced is not the feeling that love is possible. What you experienced during that movie was more like, I don't want to be a human being anymore. The world is filled with pain and darkness. What's interesting about Synecdoche, New York, is that in many ways it follows the same formula as Charlie Kaufman's other movies. In many ways, this is just another example of Charlie Kaufman writing the same movie again and again. Meaning he takes an idea and he builds on it in a magical, realist way. The way it feels on the inside gets externalized on the outside. And that's really the formula of Charlie Kaufman. As different as these movies are, that is the formula of Charlie Kaufman. You take, some, you take something that's happening and you make the way it feels on the inside become the thing that happens on the outside. You make the, the way it feels become the plot. I wish I could erase this girl from my memory. Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. I wish I could sell out and adapt this unadaptable novel. Oh, here's my brother Donald Kaufman, who's going to sell out and have nothing but success. And that's adaptation. That's really Charlie Kaufman's formula. Take what's happening on the inside and make it happen on the outside. And Synecdoche, New York, is simply built on the idea that all people, in some ways, are the same person, that we all share an experience. And this is not a new idea for Charlie Kaufman. This is just being John Malkovich all over again in a different way. The idea that we are all acting the same patterns again and again and again. And Charlie Kaufman externalizes that idea and it becomes these repeated sequences with everybody becoming everybody else. It's actually the exact same movie. He's just wrestling with the same kinds of ideas. And in this movie, he wrestled with it in a tone that was probably very artistically satisfying for him. Where he said, you know what? I'm tired of this feel-good shit. I want to look at it through a darker window. And so he's still doing a Charlie Kaufman movie. But without the tone we've come to expect from Charlie Kaufman. And there probably is a way for that movie to become successful. If the marketing team got together and they marketed the movie like Charlie Kaufman as you've never seen him before. Welcome to the dark side of Charlie Kaufman. Then the audience would have shown up not expecting to laugh. They would have shown up expecting to be disturbed. And they probably would have been pleasantly disturbed by a darn good movie. So what happens is when we sell one thing and deliver something else, the audience always gets mad at us. And what does that mean to you? That means at some point in your career, you are going to need to make a choice. The question of branding is one of the hardest questions for writers. And some people will tell you, just write thrillers. And some people will tell you, write different movies to show your range. 
And what I'd like to tell you is write the movie that is in your heart. Because that's the movie that's going to be compelling. And then write the next one and the next one and the next one. And eventually what you're going to notice is that certain themes end up rising to the surface for you. And once you see those themes arise, you may start to have some success as a writer. And at that point, you might have that high class problem. And you might find yourself fighting upstream because your agent or your manager has different priorities than you. And that's a good thing because if they're not worried about your career, then you have to worry about it. It's their job to worry about your career. It's your job to worry about putting exciting stuff on the page. It's your job to worry about telling the truth. It's your job to worry about giving them the material that makes you worth representing in the first place. So if they are not pushing you to do the thing that's going to bring in cash or sustain your career, then they're not doing their job. You should have conflict with your agent, just like you should have conflict with your line producer. You should be pissed off about what's being cut, and they should be cutting the things you love. I like to think that I need to do enough work for my agent, my manager, my producer, that they can know how to talk about me as a writer, so that they can know what to say. And that means being able to talk about the themes that are resonant in my piece. Whether I'm writing a romantic comedy, a thriller, a horror movie, a drama, if I'm not showing my agent what to say, then I'm dependent on them being brilliant. And some of them are brilliant. But branding yourself as a writer doesn't mean locking yourself in a box of writing only one thing. It just means that you have to do the work to help them know how to sell you. I was recently talking to one of the top agents at UTA. And he said sometimes he'll sign a young writer knowing that he won't make any money from them for the first five years that they're with him. And my God, I wish everyone had an agent like this. He's risen, risen to the top. He's the top of the top. And there's a reason for it. And that reason, he has a unique ability to actually think in the long term. To think about building the career rather than selling the one project. Most of us don't get lucky enough to get an agent like this, which means that we have to do it for ourselves. It can never be about the one project. It's got to be about the career. It can never be about the one script that you're going to sell. It has to become about the library of scripts so that you can develop the voice that actually allows you to develop a brand in the first place. This agent told the story of the writer of the of Diary of a Teenage Girl coming to him with this unlikely story. The main character is having sex with her mother's boyfriend. She's 13 years old. It's not exactly commercial. And he's told the story of her coming to him. And what he said was, this is going to be really hard. 
and I will do it. But I need to know you're going to work even harder than I am. Because that's how hard it's going to be to get this made. And she said, okay. And they got it made together. So look, if you're lucky enough to have an agent like this, they will make, they will make miracles happen for you that you could never imagine. But most of us don't get that agent. We don't get that manager. We don't get that producer. We get the person who's average at their job. Statistically, most people are average at their job. And that means I can't depend on a brilliant agent to come up with the sales pitch for my movie. And I certainly can't depend on my brilliant agent to come up on a sales pitch for me. I can't expect them to brand me. I need to brand myself. But that brand doesn't start with thriller comedy because the truth is that's how everybody's talking about themselves. That brand begins with what I have to say as a writer and how I want to say it. And I have to present that to them so that they know how to market me now. So that they know what our short-term strategy is and what our long-term strategy is. You want to be direct with them when they sign you about what your goals are. And you want them to be direct with you about how they can help you achieve those goals. So when you sign with an agent, you want to talk to them about the kinds of movies that you write. And the fact of the matter is you need to write some movies so that you know. You need to develop your voice so that you can start to see the patterns that come up again and again in your writing, even if you're not consciously thinking about it. And when you sign with an agent, you want to lay out your strategy for them and get them to lay out the strategy for you. And sometimes you don't have a choice. And if you don't have a choice, if there's only one person that wants you, sign with them. But if even just that one person wants you, the chances are the reason they want you is not because you wrote comedies or because you wrote thrillers or because you wrote action movies. They want you because you have a unique voice that no one else can give them. Because that unique voice is the only reason to take a chance on a young writer. If you're lucky enough to get a choice, have them talk to you about what they see in your writing, what they connect to, what it's about for them. Have them lay out the long-term strategy for you, the short-term strategy. How are you going to do it? Who are your connections? What are the kinds of things that you sell well? What are the things you've sold recently? What are the kinds of things you struggle at selling? These are the questions you want to be asking your agent when you have a choice. You have to be willing to say to the agent, I have no interest in writing these kinds of movies, so I need to know how quickly we can get me out of writing this and into writing that, and what our strategy is to do it. If you're famous for comedies, and you really want to write dramas, you need to strike the deal with them where you say, look, I'm going to give you two more comedies, and then I'm going to write a little indie drama that's going to cost a million dollars to shoot, and I'm going to want the kind of support on that that you gave me on a $40 million comedy. Pre-negotiate it with them. If they say no, at least you know where you are. And then you want to think about their need for an easy way to brand you. They've got a whole roster of clients and they don't have time to put the kind of thought into your career that you have. 
Give them a simple way to brand you. Make sure it's a way that you're excited about being branded. This is why I love John Dapolito's work on theme. Some of you have probably heard me talk about John. John is an acting teacher here in New York, and you can check him out at johndapolito.com. John is a great acting teacher, but he's really brilliant at identifying patterns. He's great at finding patterns, and he helps actors to identify the themes that drive their acting, the kinds of roles that they're great at playing, teaching them how to talk about their acting in terms of those themes. And what I believe is that those themes in our lives change in different acts of our lives, just like they might change in a different act of your movie. That as we change and develop as writers, as we write script after script after script, the themes that resonate with us change. The theme that you're wrestling with now is not necessarily going to be the theme you're wrestling with forever. It just happens to be the hot theme for you right now. But what I love about John's work is that instead of branding around an idea like, I play the funny best friend, he'll play, he'll brand around, I play the character who always feels less than the people around her. Instead of branding around, I write dramas, he'll brand around, I write movies about loss. So if you're writing a movie about loss, then you could be like, yes, I could have written Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But I could have also written The Hangover. So you see, what this work allows you to do as a writer is give your agent a way of putting you in a box, but it's your box. If you're going to work with an agent, if you're going to work with a manager, if you're going to work with a producer, the fact of the matter is the expediency of the industry requires you to give them a way of putting you in a box. But if you can create that box by talking about the themes that matter to you rather than the types of movies you like to write. Let me say it one last time. The fact of the matter is if you're going to succeed in the industry, if you're going to work with an agent or a manager or a producer, if you're not just going to do everything yourself, you need to give them a way of putting you in a box because they're going to want to put you in a box. They're going to need to put you in a box because they're not going to be able to think, well, how do I describe this at this person? What you have the power to do is to define your own box. So you're not stuck writing the same kind of movie for the rest of your life. And it might may be that at some point you're going to have to sit down with your agent and say, you know what, I'm not interested in doing movies about loss anymore. I'm interested in exploring transcendence. But we need to give our the people who represent us that way of talking about us so that they can bring order to the chaos, so that they can know which projects to submit us to and which projects not to, which producers to talk to about us and which producers not to. And sometimes that's an uphill battle because your business people's job is to make money. And the easiest way to make money is to do the same thing again and again and again and again in slightly different ways. Some of them are going to want to brand you in one very simple way rather than talking about your themes. Eventually you get bored with doing the same old shit. 
but your agent, your manager, your producer will never get bored of receiving it. They will never get bored of receiving it because really the easiest thing to sell to the audience is the same experience in a different way. That's why every Disney movie feels the same. It's the same experience in a different way. Now, it's not that there's an invisible audience that wants homogeneity and won't ever let you change. It's just that they had a good experience and they missed that experience and they want it again. This is why you see um, sequels getting made over and over and over. So if we're going to talk from a purely commercial perspective, this is why it is so darn important to make your first movie something you care about. If you explore a theme that matters to you, there are infinite variations you can do on that theme. And you'll be at least able to get enough of those movies out to build your career and get people to trust you. Look at the career of Robin Williams. For years, people only wanted him to play Mork, some version of the coked-up comic who could speak at 100 miles an hour and act wacky. He built his career on being able to do that exact same thing in different ways and in different movies. And then he started to transition. He was able to make that leap because he'd gotten people to trust him. And he started to transition into dramas and into many award-winning dramas. But what was interesting about those dramas is that the dramas and the comedies were tied by a common theme, the theme of loss. Think about all the movies he's made and how many had a dead wife in them. He had a dead wife in almost every movie. Even Mork had lost his home. Mrs. Doubtfire, had lo he'd lost his children. There's a theme of loss that was present in almost everything Robin Williams did. He just found different ways to wrestle with that theme. It might have been easier for his career from a purely commercial level to just make that same comic movie again and again and again. And there would have been nothing wrong if he'd made that decision as long as that was interesting to him. Because all, we all have to make that decision eventually. As long as you're not bored of exploring the same theme, keep exploring it. It allows you to build a brand and get it out there. People say, yeah, I know what she does. I get what this is about. It's only at the point that you get bored that you have to start making tough decisions. You have to start asking yourself, is this serving your career or is this serving your art? You're going to have to say to yourself, okay, I'm bored of this. What do I want to do? Because sometimes what happens is we end up in these patterns and we start to limit our range. Like the actor who always cries or the actor who always yells. And we forget that there's an entire different range of what we can do. One of my favorite Pacino performances, I saw him at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles. He was doing a little-known Eugene O'Neill play called Yui. And Yui is the character that's the opposite of the character you usually see Al Pacino play. They stuck him in a suit that was too big for him, and he plays from a place of weakness rather than a place of strength. A guy who doesn't have a personal center rather than the guy who does. And it was one of the most profound performances I've seen on stage. It made me wish Pacino had bumped into a film director later in his career who'd pushed him in that way, who'd said, Hey, Al, what happens if you don't yell at all in this movie? So sometimes the other way to think of it, when you see yourself doing the same pattern, you do it in one movie, cool. You do it in two movies, cool. You do it in five movies, 
And you have to start to ask, okay, is this a pattern that is now etched in my mind as the only possibility that is limiting me as an artist in some way? What are the other possibilities that are also true? Mostly today we've talked about artists that I think are successful with building around an exploration of theme, with branding themselves around an exploration of theme. But there are also artists that I think are limited by it. One of the artists I think gets limited is Lars von Trier. And I think he has the potential to become one of the greatest writer-directors of all time. But I don't believe he is yet. I believe he's limited by a belief that ultimately nothing can ever change. That ultimately he is always going to be a slave to his depression, to his self-destruction. That the universe will always unravel on him the way it unravels on his characters. And what's starting to happen for me with his movies, even though I love his movies, even though he's extraordinary in his execution, is it always bumps in the same place for me. It's always like, okay, now we're going to nihilism. So think about what would happen if one day Lars von Trier said, okay, even if I don't believe in the possibility of overcoming my depression, even if I don't believe that the universe could ever change, if I did believe in it, what would it look like? When we start to do that, neuro neurologically, we start to build new patterns in our brains where our creative minds start to believe in other possibilities. And one of the cool things about the subconscious is that the subconscious is like a child. In a way, anything you tell it is true, it will start to believe is true. Especially if you tell it repeatedly and powerfully with images and sound and feeling like you do when you write. And so sometimes what happens is we're doing the same thing again and again, but we're actually giving ourselves a window into our own neurological pathways. And that gives you an opportunity to stand back and say, hey, is this actually as wide as my mind can go? Or are there other pathways that I would like to explore? Are there other possibilities I haven't fully looked at yet? What I'd like to suggest to you is that if you need to write a few movies to explore one neurological pathway so you can really understand at least one aspect of where you are and who you are, then sometimes it's okay to explore that one path. But other times, it's worth asking yourself, what are the paths that you have not explored? What are the ones that you don't even know exist? You wrote the movie about the most selfish person ever? What would it be like to write a movie about the most generous one? And when you do that, it expands your worldview. It allows you to look at a, at a wider shot of the world rather than just at one little piece of it. Sometimes you start to say, oh, isn't that interesting? I can actually see my pattern in this piece. I can actually see my belief systems playing out in my writing again and again. And changing that may not always be the easiest thing for your career. But it certainly is the best thing for your art. So if you see the same paths playing out again and again and again, 
Okay, that's cool. But take a moment to ask yourself, what happens if he doesn't yell? What happens if he doesn't make the most destructive choice? What happens if the worst thing doesn't happen? What happens if you allow yourself to surprise yourself? And what starts to happen is you begin to see the other possibilities. And to take your art and your audience and yourself to places they wouldn't ordinarily expect to go. And that's what it really means to be a writer. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to study with me in New York City, online, as part of our ProTrack one-on-one mentorship program, or on our international retreats, please visit my website, www.writeyourscreenplay.com. And until then, happy writing.